Welcome to Plants and Pipettes. The podcast where we talk about plants and pipettes. Yarm is destructed right now. Yeah, I'm Pay trying. attention, Yarm. No, never. Uh, today on the podcast, I'm going to be talking about resurrection plants. And, and I will be talking about uh, how plants make sure that the right gases get out and in and how that is controlled. And because I'm drinking my tea, Yoram has to go first. Um, so, uh, I... Uh, <laughs> I have panic, panic, panic. Where's my, where's my notes? Yeah. What's happening? I have everything right here. I'm well prepared and I don't stall for time to By just bring Philip up... Philip Ostrink. Matamata, matamata. The first paper I want to uh, introduce today, we're jumping right into it right today. No, no chit-chat. What would you like to chit-chat about? Nothing. There's nothing exciting happening in my life. I think generally our chit-chat is like when the cat is in the room, we talk about the cat, but otherwise, yeah. like, the cat has gone. <laughs> the cat has left the building. Um, so my first paper, my first paper that I want to talk about today is Hydraulics Regulate Stomatal Responses to Changes in Leaf Water Status in the Fern Ethereum Felix Femina. Ethereum? Ethereum Felix Femina. No. We really like to like at one point like it's after a fern, guys. after thirty episodes or so I'll do a supercut of us pronouncing Latin names wrong. Oh hell yes, <laughs> and like just feel free to write in and tell us how we're doing everything wrong. We don't mind. Yeah, but do, please do it in written form <laughs> so we can figure out the pronunciation. <laughs> then we have to learn what's it even called where you like uh, have the different this phonetic alphabet yeah, yeah we have that to i can't this. read yeah which we also don't know how to say so it's, it's just going to be a mess you I, guys I, I used to it's have a mess a, in in school when we had french it would always have the pronunciation in this phonetic writing i could not read it and every and the book sort of implied that we in like fifth grade have to understand phonetic I think writing they know they're just making it harder for you they're like learn it by rote or we're gonna have to do this really hard thing so guys just like do your homework and learn it by rote <laughs> like it's a trick anyway i'm looking up this ethereum and it looks like a fern. It's, That's a yeah, take-home. It just looks like your standard fern. ferny fern you're going to put in your bathroom and then it will die anyway, even though it's really humid in your bathroom. Yep. yep. Um, so the paper is by Amanda A. Cardoso, Joshua Randall, and Scott McAdam. Um, and this is published in uh, Plant Physiology. Well done. That's how you pronounce plant physiology. It's like... Physiology. <laughs> physiology. Um, and yes, so this paper, the title has already some hints to what it's about. First I can't remember the title. It's so hydraulics. 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 So it's something to do water with water pressure. Or snakes. Hydra? <laughs> it's, sorry. It's about, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's about the snakes and plant leaves. Mm. No, it's about uh, the water pressure. Hydraulics uh, have to do with water pressure. Um, stomatal responses is something we will have a look at in a minute, what a stoma is. And um, they respond to changes in leaf water status in a fern that looks like a fern. Uh, so first of, first of it all, like, uh, what are stomata? Um, stomata are the little things on, on, on the other side of leaves usually that are the openings in the leaf to let in the gases. And which gases do they let in and which gases do they let out? They let in carbon dioxide and they let out oxygen, generally. In general, I yes. I mean, mostly they just like let in air and let out like exhaust from the, yeah. from the plant, right? The different differentially enriched air is mm -hmm. what they let in and out. But they also let something else out. Water. Water. And that is what they... Um, yeah, the, the main function of them is to have, not the main, one of the things that happens there is that water transpires in the leaves and then it gets sucked up from the roots uh, and you get this like sort of sucking that drives the water from the roots into the top parts of the plant and takes nutrients with it. That's one of the ways that so stuff the, is transported. The water coming out of the stomato holes actually creates a gradient that then lets the plant bring up water from the bottom and then bring up other yeah. things with it. It's like sucking on a straw and uh, the evaporation in the leaves sucks on the straw in the stem that sucks up the water. Um, and this is then, this means that they have a very important function because if they let out too much water, the plant dries out and dies. And if they don't let enough water out uh, or if they are closed, then there's no gas exchange and they can't, you can't have photosynthesis that uses carbon dioxide. So they have to open at the right moments and close at the right moments. And uh, in this paper, they are not looking at uh, oxygen and CO2, but they're looking at water and how that um, uh, is regulating the, the 
uh, opening and closing of stomata. And in general, all the stomata um, work like uh, work like this, that you have two guard cells and they look like balloon animals, like long sausage-like guard cells. And um, depending on how well how much they are inflated they can open or close the stomata and it works like this that if they get inflated like if they were balloons and if they would get inflated they open and if they are not inflated they close but obviously in cells in the plant you don't have air that's blowing up or closing these guard cells um, it's done by water and the inter internal pressure of these guard cells um, that defines their their structure if they're open or close it's called turgor and this is something we will have a look at a couple of times here. And um, because we're talking about ferns, then often you immediately start talking about uh, evolution because um, ferns are very, like evolutionary, a very old um, type of plant. And um, stomata even precede them. So they stomata have been shown to be older than 400, 410 million years in, uh, in terms of evolution. And they probably emerged on some type of moss or hornwort species, which are non-vascular species. And vascular species uh, describes species that have a specialized uh, tissue to uh, draw water. To, so the stem that transports water um, is the vascular tissue. And ferns are vascular plants, but um, these stomata came uh, on an evolutionary scale even before that. Um, it's at, at least that's suggested. And what I also found out in, by, by looking this up is that stomata can be seen in fossils. And so in like fossilized ferns, you could already see the stomata. And it's how we know that already early fern species use stomata for the water regulation. I have a fun fact about stomata. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I was interviewing for my PhD position, one of the other candidates got asked like how to see this tomato because it's 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 really hard. Like, I mean, if you look under a microscope, you then change the conditions under which your stomata are opening and closing. So apparently one of the ways they used to do it in the good old days is you would get your leaf under the conditions that you wanted to look at and get some clear nail polish and just slap that onto the underside of the leaf. And then basically the nail polish sets and hardens and then you peel off the nail polish and you have this impression. So mm. I guess that's very similar to the fossilized thing where you have like this impression in the mud of yeah. little like screaming stomata like ah, yeah. as the plant dies in the mud. There's pretty much the screaming mouth of plants, the stomata. Yeah. Hundreds of them on every leaf. Um, and evolutionary also um, uh, interesting to mention is that it's unknown if they all come from the same common ancestor or if they evolved multiple times individually. Um, there's a lot of debate about that and nobody knows yet. There are also different types of guard cells around the stomata as well, right? So like, I mean, we think of these kind of two jelly bean shaped things, but there's also, I think monocots more often have like these like kind of figure eight or like, I think it's dumbbell called. And then some of them have like more than just two guard cells. So they have like layers of guard cells or four guard cells. So yeah, it's a bit different in different species. Um, that's also the big thing in, in this paper. They're comparing the fern, which is a non-seed plant, to uh, seed plants, the angiosperms. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you seem to be expert in ferns from having them in the bathroom. So I, how kill, I kill them every time. <laughs> how do they reproduce? They have spores, which they spread everywhere. And yeah, and that separates them from, from the angiosperms, which and have... And the gymnosperms. And the gymnosperms, which both have seeds. One of them have covered seeds, if one of them have naked seeds, which is also what the... Gym. That's why you're naked when you go to the gym. Yeah. No <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop now. <laughs> yeah, it's an important thing to mention is let's go to the gym, no sperm. <laughs> Ew. I think, I think you made it worse. I was just thinking like being naked at the gym, but you've really brought that. Okay, guys, this is a PG rated podcast. We're going to continue talking about Samada. Yeah, and... Uh, um, yeah, so evolutionary, these ferns um, precede the angiosperms, and uh, the question now is how plant, how the stomata gets uh, opened and get opened and closed. And in angiosperms, it's fairly well studied. Um, there's a couple of things that make uh, the stomata open, and a couple of things that make them close, and uh, a, a few things that. Uh, in response to different levels, they they follow that. Uh, the first thing is um, they, in general, they open. Uh, it has been shown in many studies that they open when sh uh, there is red light shine uh, shown shown shone? Sh shone onto the leaf, um, 
or when there is low CO2 and the light is on, then the stomata open to let in air um, and uh, yeah, have photosynthesis going. Um, they close when there is blue light Mm-hmm. And, and they follow um, things like the vapor pressure difference of water. So the difference, that's sort of the potential of how humid the, uh, the air is uh, inside the leaf and outside the leaf. Mm-hmm. And depending on the relationship between the atmospheric uh, vapor pressure and the leaf vapor pressure, they open or close to allow moisture to escape or to stop the plants from drying out. Um, and... This is uh, another way of, of how, how they work. And in um, ang- there's a couple of mechanisms how this whole thing, this opening and closing can work. And the most simple mechanism is just this turgor of these guard cells. So when the turgor increases, the internal pressure increases, they open. And if it decreases, they close. And so they look kind of like bean-like when they're like full, they push outwards. And I think it's because um, on the inner side of the um, bean, they have like a thicker kind of cell wall there. So when the the beans fill up, they can only push backwards. They can't like push inwards. They push kind of backwards. And then when there's there's less like fluid inside them, then that's toward they kind of like relax and close. And that is very uh, st- um, regulated, very straightforwardly by <laughs> having um, a proton a influx, word. a proton influx or efflux. So protons getting it pumped into the cell or out of the cell, and with the potons, uh, protons, then water follows. So if you osmosis, yes, exactly, osmosis drives that. This is the most simple mechanism. However, this relies on. Um, that the guard cells being able to move freely and, and with guard cells that are embedded in a epidermis like in most angiosperms there's lots of very stiff cells around them mm-hmm. and uh, so they can't just move through that so it's not enough to just change the pressure within the guard cells you have to sort of change the surrounding as well mm-hmm. and that's why in angiosperms this mechanism is a bit more complicated and there is a, a molecular control of it there's some signaling going on and um, it's mostly relying on aba or abscisic acid um, and this signaling molecule then triggers the opening and closing response and different levels of aba then um, change the behavior because then the, the entire area around the um, stomata uh, sort of re- reduces in pressure or increases in pressure to have the to, to give the guard cells room to to operate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, however, ferns don't have this epi- ep- epidermis. Wait, what? They don't have this strong cell layer around them. Um, so the technically the guard cells should be able to open and close just on their own. They don't need the. the is it just because they're in a very moist environment so they don't need this like protective layer or I mean what As f- I didn't look into why uh, ferns don't have an epidermis but Crazy. Uh, the uh, in the in the paper they say that the f- the guard cells in the fern they don't have this uh, structure around them that r- requires changing in turgor or in inner pressure as much as you have that in angiosperms and so now there's a big debate uh, amongst researchers um, there's uh, one group that says uh, we tested, we, we think it's just a simple mechanism of pressure and uh, we tested with with the ABA, we a- applied a lot of ABA to it and the stomata just did not react in response to the ABA. That's okay. one group and they say it's a simple model. And then there's a second group that says we added uh, ABA by spraying or submerging the leaves in ABA solutions of different concentrations and then we saw uh, some stomatal, st- uh, stomatal response. So they believe ABA plays a role in this mechanism, similar to angiosperms. Scientists at war. And this paper tries to settle um, the, this question and tries to figure out what is going on here um, exactly. And so for that, they, they did an experiment. They used this fern species, um, Felix femina. And the, um, th- the smart thing that they, they used here is they used from the same species two varieties that exist. There's a wild type variety that looks like a standard fern. And um, there's a friselia variety that has much shorter pinnae, as they're called, because they're not really leaves in ferns, and mm-hmm. they're called pinnae. But for, looks like a leaf. Yeah, for, for me, who doesn't know anything about plants, um, they... And I showed Tegan a picture now. They look like much shorter 
versions of the oh, okay it doesn't it doesn't film. really look like a, a fern anymore it kind of looks like a snake wrapped around a central stick or like a pipe cleaner <laughs> a pipe cleaner it looks like a pipe that's so much better than my snake stick thing although i would i would prefer a, pi- a snake around a stick than a pipe cleaner but yeah but it's, it looks pretty much like a pipe cleaner and you and the other one looks like a fern mm-hmm. and the difference in morphology there uh, has also um impact on their um on some water transport capabilities of them and they measure there's two things that they measure um the the one is called the hydraulic conductance and that is sort of the amount of water that can flow through the the plant um uh, you can imagine that like if if the the plant the the inner uh, conductive tissue would be like a pipe this is sort of di- the diameter of the pipe that allows how much how much water can flow through there mm-hmm. and the other one is the ca- uh, capacitance which is the amount of water that is in the leaf and the pipe cleaner type the friselier has uh, higher values for both of them so it can transport more water and hold more water in it um, so that it's um, so if you look at responses to different um water pressure around it it should just have a differential response to the wild type and that's the important thing here so to, to the wild type to the other to the fern like fern okay um so and mm-hmm. that was the initial experimental setup and then they started testing a couple of different um uh, experiments and they just the, the first thing they did they put them in different environments with changing water pressures uh, vapor pressures and then they measured this vapor pressure difference vpd um and looked at the stomata, how do they behave to that? And what they found is quite nice. Um, they saw that the, when they they have very nice plots in the figure where they, when you increase the water, uh, the, the VPD, um, uh, if that goes up, then the stomata respond to that and uh, always uh, following that curve and also in terms of uh, quantity. So if you only have small changes in the in the vapor pressure you only have small changes in the stomatal conductance which is sort of the averaged um op- uh, state of of many stomata if they're open or if they're closed mm-hmm. and this follows very nicely just the vapor pressure curve and it follows it differently between the the pipe cleaner type fern and the regular type fern mm-hmm. uh, so that shows that the the internal hydraulics of these two species that are uh, apart from that pretty identical in terms of like molecular composition um, just the internal hydraulics seem to have a big uh, effect on there mm-hmm. um, and then they they use the model um, and there is a computational model that describes uh, the opening and closing of stomata and it doesn't factor in any molecular uh, effect just s- uh, cell pressure okay and then they model that and then they put their experimental data on top of that and they have a very nice fit so the experimental data and the model data they look almost identical with a very so high so the changes can be explained by basically a single factor which is the pressure and then, because now they just looked at if the pressure has an effect, but they didn't look it at the, the the question if the ABA has an effect or not. So then they also started adding ABA um, to to it. Or oh, first of all, they measured the AB, internal ABA concentrations in the leaves mm-hmm. um, at different vapor pressure differences and at different stomatal conductance values. So at different um, states of co- uh, stomata being open or closed. And there was just, I mean, you you can see here the plot, but uh, they don't have any correlation between them. It just looks like random dots because the ABA uh, seems not to be uh, correlated with the stomatal opening closing. Okay, so in angiosperms, the flowering plants, this abscisic acid does have a correlation with the stomata opening, but in fern, it doesn't look like it, or at least yeah. in this fern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And after looking at the internal uh, ABA levels, they also applied external, uh, externally ABA to it, and they could also see no response. And from that, they pretty much build on the idea that it's just um, the internal water pressure that defines the opening and closing of the stomata. And um, yeah, and in the end, that's that's the conclusion that in, in ferns, the the model is very simple. It's just the pressure inside these guard cells that defines the stomatal response and um, so if it's wet outside then they open if it's uh, very dry outside they close um, and this very simple mechanism they they then say has also bigger effects um, when when people uh, archaeologists uh, want to uh, model water flows uh, 400 million years ago 
this has an influence on it. This, this can simplifies modeling it from the water flow from the ground through plants into atmosphere and so on. When people try to recreate climates and so on, um, they build models. And this is an important puzzle piece in this model to say uh, it's, you can very easily uh, replace a fern with a, a model equation um, because there's no molecular complications in there. It's just water pressure difference between leaf water content and or, or leaf water vapor pressure and atmospheric vapor pressure. It's a bit sad for the ferns because we have um, a lot of us study what we call higher plants. So we study the vascular plants and specifically the angiosperms. And we there's this tendency to look down on like the lower plants or the mosses and the ferns as, as very like primitive is the yeah. word. I mean, they're just less derived Can from the ancestor. Very beautiful as well, but I mean, this is kind of showing. Hey, they are actually primitive. They are yeah. actually like in this in this single issue, they are quite. Um, the fun simple. thing about the paper was that they they really tried to prove this other group of scientists wrong, and they're saying like we tested all of this, and in the end, they say not that, the scientists, the hypothesis that the other scientists no, I, make. I, I, Let's like <laughs> to me, it read it read personal. <laughs> oh my goodness! They said the most parsimonious explanation is that functional stomata regulation by ABA evolved in the common ancestor of the seed plants. Um, and that's, uh, or actually the other sentence that the um, that I wanted to say is that it's just a leaf turga that, that provides the most parsimonious explanation. And I had to look up this word. Parsimonious. Yeah. I assume nice. that was like a little bit uh, smart as <laughs> about it. I mean, like, it's, like, it's just that. <laughs> it's Stop clearly it. just this. Um, yeah. So I'm, that's my paper. I'm kind of interested about this, what this means in the context of like changing climate, because um. There's this discussion now about the fact that so if we have increasing like the the greenhouse effect or like global climate change, it's because of increased carbon dioxide. This is like one of the not because of but it's one of the the things that's happening. There's increasing carbon dioxide concentration, which can actually be good for plants because they get more carbon dioxide. They can be more productive. They get less oxygen compared yeah. to carbon dioxide. But the the downside of that is that it's also going to get hotter and drier like generally, yeah. and this of course means that plants suffer more and they actually have to keep their stomata closed so they can't even take up the carbon dioxide um and i wonder if a plant like this where the response is very simply based on how moist and like cool the air is if that sort of plant will suffer much more because mm -hmm. it doesn't have such a complex regulation so if there's like rapid changes as far as like evolutionary time so these like human yeah. based responses maybe something like this he just doesn't have like fine tuning mechanisms it can only respond to the weather basically and maybe this plant yeah I'm, I'm curious about that yeah it's i i, think I have it, no answer it would be likely that um, plants like this with a more s simple mechanism to regulate their water content yeah they they can't adapt as easily because they have less opportunities to to change something in their system yeah i have a fun fact based on that because um i was just looking up now i was wondering what exactly an epidermis is and whether or not ferns actually don't have an epidermis if anyone knows the answer to this can you like like message us and tell us what the yeah. deal is with ferns and epidermis because i couldn't find it with a quick internet search but basically the epidermis is this single layer of cells that is on the outside of the plants and it doesn't apart from the guide cells it doesn't really contain chloroplasts like this clear protective layer to kind of keep like a, a seal basically yeah. um okay and the fun fact is that most plants have a single cell layer of the epidermis but some plants like ficus elastica have two layers and just for all of you um who haven't been looking at the blog and the instagram i'm pushing a very strong ficus elastica like <laughs> it's our agenda <laughs> it's my agenda i have a huge one growing in my house and i'm in love with it and i mean i've already mentioned that ficus elastica can be used to build bridges. Um, somebody mentioned that they have really amazing thylakoid membranes to look at through the transition electron micrograph. And now we find that they also have special epidermal layers. So super cool. It's just yeah. like, it's just the best plant there is, guys. Like, yeah. uh, we, should, we should just be growing ficus plants. Yes, and studying them. <laughs> I'm going to put as the, we have this model plant series on the blog. So I'm going to have like Arabidopsis and like tobacco and wheat and rice and this stuff. And then I'm going to have like, Ficus. Ficus. Like the, the plant of the future. <laughs> the model plant everyone should be studying. <laughs> <laughs> and actually that um that transitions quite nicely into what I'm talking about today because it is studying of a completely non-model plant. So I kind of gave a spoiler last week or a teaser last week about um this extremophile plant. Um 
I remember. You remember. As if it was today. <laughs> Shh, don't let them see behind the curtain. We're recording two episodes in one week, guys. Like, um, yeah. Okay, so I did a paper which is called Chloroplast Breakdown During Dehydration of a Hoimoyo. Hoimoyo? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just leaving you, leaving you hanging there. Homeochlorophyllous <laughs> resurrection plant proceeded via senescence-like processes. I'm sorry. This is by Chavuri et al. this year in Environmental and Experimental Botany. And I just want to mention that it's part of a larger story that the lab has been following for some years. So you can um, look back and there's at least two more publications um, from the same groups of or- group of authors Um and it's, it's really fascinating. I actually saw the, the first author, Dana, give a talk once. And mm. it's, it's just super cool. Like, it's, it's really different when you go to a conference and you see, like, 100 talks about Arabidopsis, which are very, very useful. And then you see something about something completely. It's like a nice, like, palate cleanser yeah. to see these, like, super yeah. weird plants. Also, always my favorite talks to, to attend. I- yeah. Okay. So, first of all, I'm going to talk about why plants need water. And this is kind of the theme for the week because you already mentioned it. But my first public service announcement is that if your houseplants are dying, it's not because they need water. It's because you are overwatering them. There's a discussion I've had a few times this week, like most people, I think. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't overwater plants because I don't water plants. Period. And that's the best way. I think that the biggest problem is that usually like in a couple, both people are like taking turns to water the plant and then they just like both water the plant. And yeah. Anyway, um, so... <laughs> Uh, if you don't water your plants, the cells lose their turga and they can't keep their stomata open, which is what your arm literally just talked about. And the problem with this, as we also just mentioned, is that if their stomata are closed, they can't let in carbon dioxide. And this is generally a problem because plants need carbon dioxide to photosynthesize. Otherwise, they don't have energy. They don't make carbon sources yeah. um, to live. But also, if they don't have carbon dioxide, then the Calvin cycle, so this is where Rubisco fixes carbon dioxide and makes it into those like usable, basically sugars, usable carbon sources. The carbon cycle carbon cycle isn't running, which is all well and good. Plants gonna starve eventually, but it's not a huge problem. The biggest problem is that when the carbon cycle is not running, you have a whole lot of electrons building up, which are not mm. getting used by the carbon cycle. So usually there are electrons um, and some other things being made by the linear electron transport chain which is the first step of photosynthesis. So in these thylakoid membranes, you have photosystem one and photosystem two in your linear electron transport chain, and they're passing electrons through, and they're basically making like power in the form of ATP, but also like um, electrons as such. So it's, it's reducing power um, that comes out of the, the linear electron transport chain. And these are then used to power the Calvin cycle. If the carbon cycle is effectively turned off because your tomato are closed, you've not got any carbon dioxide coming in, then you have all of this stuff basically building up. We have a blockage in the system. And we've talked about this many times now. When you have a blocking of a system, what do you get? Accumulation and ROS. ROS, so reactive oxygen species. And this is particularly bad if there's high light because when there's high light, all of the um, uh, photosystems, so photosystem one and photosystem two, all of them, um, they're actually like harvesting all the light and they're collecting all of this like electron energy basically and they've got nowhere to put it. And of course the big problem is that often where you have drought and lack of water and lack of carbon dioxide because your star matter are closed and then lack of the carbon cycle and blah, 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 it also overlaps with where you have highlight, i.e. the desert. So this can be a really big problem. Um, So if you have a lack of water and you've got your photosynthetic transport chain still running, you get ROS. Reactive oxygen species then not only damage the photosynthetic machinery, which kind of made them their own parents, but also (laughs) like just generally goes through the cell wrecking havoc. So it destroys proteins, lipids, and eventually if you get too much ROS, you end up with irreversible changes and you get death of the, the organelle, the cell, and the whole plant in the end and this is why that's why ross is my least favorite friend oh no <laughs> i mean like <laughs> on one hand yes because he, he's like legitimately the worst like should we discuss about no anyway <laughs> <laughs> sorry i was holding on for this for like five minutes let it out yeah let it out <laughs> but maybe like in your own time not when i'm here um oh gosh now I've just like completely... Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. It, kill, it kills everything. Um, Russ is bad. 
Um, he should be punished. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Um, okay. Yeah, so this is also why people like take antioxidants and supplements, this weird idea. I, I don't think they work. Um, but generally, we have this idea that you have antioxidants, which can counteract rust, which can be damaging and aging processes. And I think it's the same mechanism in all these like oxy cleaners as well, right? They have like an oxidizing agent in there and that oxidizes organic compounds and therefore they can be washed out of clothes as far as you know. So like oxidation is a strong chemical reaction. And so anything that does that should not be left on its own, especially not in a biological environment. Okay. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is a special group of plants, which are called resurrection plants. And this is a bunch of extremophiles. So they, they live in extreme environments, in particular, they live in very dry environments. And they're able to lose almost all of their water for very long periods of time. So they can get like, it is up to 0.1 gram of water per gram of tissue, which I don't know, we usually say like the human body is 70% water. So this is like 0.1 gram. No, I, uh, 1%. So, yeah, that's... No, that's 10%. Sorry. Yeah, that's 10%. I'm not sure what the plant percentage of water is. I think it's more like 90% from my yeah. like fresh weight dry life. Yeah. Anyway, they can get really tiny amounts of water. <laughs> and um, then after basically drying out, they can come back in a few days or a few hours, depending on the species. And it's not like a single clade or a species or... or genus it's like something that's kind of arisen across different um, phylogenetic groups and the one um, I'm going to talk about today is the one from the paper which is this craterostigma pumilum that I introduced last week it's kind of a little small green thing that looks a bit like an African violet maybe without like the furry leaves but it has um yeah small green leaves um and like very small blue flowers it's it's blue carpet is the the English name apparently but it's found in Africa, and I think it's, I mean, it's not such a common um, plant species. Um, we'll put some pictures up onto the the show notes with some links, and also some, we'll, we'll link you to something which shows how they can completely dry out and then come back again, because it looks really amazing when you see this. Like, it's definitely a pot plant that you would throw away if you had it in the house, but then it just, like, comes back to life again, and it, it's all fine, and it flowers, and it's happy. Do you think all plants are resurrecting plants, no. and we just throw them out too early? No. <laughs> okay. What are your plants? But not too much. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, it's like a small perennial herb. It's a, less than 10 centimeters tall. It makes a kind of rosette with, the, rosette with these like ovate leaves. Um, and it's a zero fight. And where zero means like dry. So it's, it's a plant that can grow in very dry environments because it has this ability to dry out and stay dormant and then spring back to life when the spring comes. Okay. Um, so that's just an introduction to the plant, but generally when we're talking about these resurrection plants and these xerophytes, they have to deal with drying and they have to deal with the effects of drying, which is mostly rust. And they have two ways of doing this and it kind of is classified based on the different types of plant they are. So one is the poikilochlorophyllus and these plants basically, when things get too dry, they start degrading everything. Mm -hmm. So they're like, okay. They just keep the essentials and everything else. Yeah, but they shut down photosynthesis. So they're like, hey, it's getting dry. We're getting a buildup of electrons here. We've got to turn off the... My microphone. Is my microphone now better? I think my microphone is now better. Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry for the loud noise. Edit mark. So. Okay, so um, these guys basically, when it gets too dry, they just shut everything down. So they say, it's too dry, we're getting a buildup of electrons, let's turn off the photosynthetic apparatus. So they break down their chlorophyll, they break down the photosynthetic proteins, and they even start degrading the thylakoid membrane. So this whole system basically just gets shut down. Mm -hmm. And this has a really big benefit in that you can't get the rust anymore. You don't get this like excess like electrons coming through, which are basically getting blocked. But of course, it means that when you do get green again, you have to build everything up again. And also you have to be able to store the energy to build it up again because you don't have the photosynthetic apparatus, which lets yeah. you get energy. So it's- You need to rely on uh, stored energy instead of just creating like or converting energy as you go. Yeah, and building up the, the photosynthetic membranes is really like a big effort, so yeah. Okay, this is the first type. The second time is the actual type that our species, um, Crater stigma belongs to, and this is the homoeochlorophyllus. Again, not sure how to say that. 
and they retain most of their photosynthetic apparatus and they retain most of their chlorophyll. Okay. And of course, this means that they have a faster recovery, but it means they do risk having this photooxidative damage. So completely destroying their photosystems, their chloroplasts, and in fact, annihilating themselves by having rust buildup. Um, they obviously have also secondary things to prevent themselves from going into like suicide mode. So they fold or curl the leaves to make sure that they have minimal exposure to the light. Mm-hmm. So this kind of solves the problem a bit. They create anthocyanins, which is... This is uh, these um, pigments, these um, and they're often like blue, reddish in color. Yeah, kind of a purple pigment. Um, yeah, and there's also, it, they can also absorb light, and but then they quench the energy, so they put it into something else in photosynth- photosynthesis, uh, often just heat. So they can sort of just like, like no, not sunscreen reflects light, but these... Uh, yeah, abs- they're basically called the sunscreen of the plant. So it's just, yeah, it's just yeah. absorbing light so that it can't get absorbed by the, the chloroplast. Um, and then they also have some secondary things like um, they have hairs on the leaves or they have like a waxy cuticle and these basically help reflect the light so that it doesn't get into the leaf. It just kind of like bounces mm. off. Um, nonetheless, despite all of these different mechanisms and the, despite the two types you have like a massive alteration of metabolism when you go into drying. So a huge accumulation accumulation of sugars um, and amino acids. This is to help build things up again. But also if you have something sugary, um, it's kind of like an antifreeze almost thing. It can help um, make things like stickier and prevent damage somehow. And also a massive buildup of antioxidants to combat the rust. So ascorbate, tocopherols, um, and also some enzymes like superoxide um, dismutase. So things which actually uh, break down the reactive oxygen species or like get rid of them. Yeah, so in the previous study of this species, um, they found that there was this coordinated shutdown and also reinstatement of the photosynthetic apparatus, which involved um, with the shutdowns to metal closure, which Yom just talked yeah. about. Um, it was also an inactivation specifically of cytochrome B6F. So this is like uh, the protein complex in between photosystem two and photosystem one. So basically, and it's actually one of the limiting factors in the linear electron transport. It's usually in the limiting numbers. So they basically pull that out, which means you can't have any more electron transport. Um, and also an increase in cyclic electron trans- transports. This is where the electrons, instead of going from photosystem two to, photos- to cytochrome B6F to photosystem one, they kind of just like move around photosystem one um, in a loop. And this can produce ATP. Um, so it also gives a little bit of energy. Uh, they also do things like detach their light harvesting complexes from photosystem two. So the light harvesting complexes... They're just like antenna that collect the light. Mm-hmm. And by disconnecting these antenna, you you disconnect this electron flow um, and you don't create or you create less uh, of the of ROS, right? Well, you, you let the, the photosynthesis can no longer harvest as much light because yeah. it's basically reducing how yeah. many of the harvesters are out there. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's also this accumulation of sucrose, as I mentioned, as well as changes in the lipids and the membrane structure. So it's this huge overall change that happens. Um, here they look more specifically at what's happening like in the physical stage. So what's happening... Um, with the chloroplasts and the leaves and, and the, the membrane structures within the plant. So they found that firstly, when um, the plant is becomes dry, the leaves all shrink. So their thickness reduces by half. They of course accumulate these anthocyanins, but they accumulate them not only on the top of the leaf, but also on the bottom of the leaf. And this is because the leaves also curl. So the top yeah. can also become the bottom, which is, is kind of cool. So they have these... Um, kind of sunscreen and they curl their leaves up and they also make the leaf like much like less thick which is also a byproduct of losing water right you, yeah. you shrink um but at the same time they still manage to maintain nearly 75 percent of their chlorophyll which is quite impressive yeah so chlorophyll is a pigment in the light harvesting complexes so in the antenna that does the, the, the collection of the of, of light and um it's expensive to make for the cell so that's why it's important to retain some of it um, so that they don't have to remake all of the chlorophyll, right? That's the advantage of set, keeping seventy-five percent. Yeah, but I mean, the downside is that the chlorophyll is what's like absorbing the light. Yeah. So I mean, if you have it hanging around, you're more likely to have yeah. rust um, happening. Um, and chlorophyll outside, if it's not within the um, the proteins themselves, it's kind of safe once it's in the proteins, but it's kind of like floating around, which it doesn't tend to do in a normal cell. That's where you get rust as well. Yeah. So it's 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 quite poisonous as such um, by itself. Um, but despite the fact that they found 75% of the chlorophyll retained, um, they did say that more of the chlorophyll was then at the bottom of the leaves, um, which they think is because um, 
there was more light damage at the top to start mm-hmm. with before the leaves are curling. So it could be variable degradation of the chlorophyll, which is kind of like chosen by the plant, but it could just be there's more light damage at the top. And also um, it could also be because of the uneven. So when these leaves shrink, they don't shrink in an even way, which just changes kind of where the, the chlorophyll is. So they weren't like super certain of this, but it might make sense that the chlorophyll that Ray maintains is the one at the bottom because in the end of the day, the plant gets enough light and shutting off the top ones is like the most yeah. important thing. Um, they also mentioned that as the leaves got uh, drier, the light was able to penetrate less well through the leaf from the top to the mm-hmm. bottom. So this is because maybe of the anthocyanins and the denseness of the cells, but this chlorophyll at the bottom was no longer getting as much of the light. This is another obvious benefit, yeah. right? So it's a, a double protection somehow. Um, when they looked at the chloroplast, they also found that they decreased in size. They shrank a bit. Um, and they did two methods, which is a transition electron microscopy after high pressure freezing. And this is a process where you can immediately freeze um, cell tissue under high pressure, as the name suggests. And it allows it um, to preserve for a microscope without having any changes. So you don't have, and this is, I mean, very important here where you don't have any hydration happening during the processing of the tissues for looking at it. And they also used um, cryo scanning electron microscopy. And this is basically a method where, again, the tissue is kind of frozen and and it's actually even more native than the high pressure freezing. And it just, again, allows them to look at this tissue in a very native state, which is not possible yeah. by other. Yeah, because whenever you do observations, you change something in the system and these like freezing methods, they try to avoid that as much as possible. And sometimes they sacrifice some um, resolution or d- being able to differentiate uh, something. Because if you look at classic microscopy, you stain membranes and then you introduce a dye and then you can very nicely see the membranes. And if you don't do that, then it might, might be harder to see the membranes. But you, what you gain in these methods is that you don't disturb the system uh, or you disturb it as little as possible. So you can, what you see is really the state that is in the plant and not something that sort of happened after the fixing of your preparate. Yeah, so after um, they had done these, these preparation techniques, they looked both at the whole cell and the chloroplast itself. So on the whole cell level, they found that the vacuoles had kind of shrink, uh, shrunk um, and generally the vacuole takes up all of the, the cell but of course when there's less water the, the vacuole shrinks and this can lead to the, the whole cell shrinking as well and normally then what you have is the plasma membrane shrinking inwards like a kind of soggy balloon moving away from the cell wall and this can be really problematic because um, there's sometimes some kind of connection between the, the membrane and the wall and you can get tears when the, the cell membrane, the plasma membrane pulls too far away from the cell wall. It can get ruptures and you can actually yeah. destroy the whole cell this way. And what they found is that there was actually um, folding of the cell wall itself as well as this massive mm. folding of the membrane, which um, then helps um, not to be tears when the folding of the membrane happens. And it's been shown previously that there can be changes in the composition um, of the cell wall that makes it like more flexible um, under these kind of times of stress. Mm. And um, they also found, again, this fragmentation of the vacuoles. So instead of having one large vacuole, you have lots of little ones. And it's, again, been shown in the literature that this, this is quite a common thing to happen during drying conditions. And also that the water inside the vacuole gets replaced by other um, non-water, non-aqueous substrates. When they they look at the chloroplast, they found kind of differentially damaged thylakoids. So in some cases, they had like fairly normal, healthy looking chloroplast with your thylakoid membranes. But in other cases, there was some damage. In other cases, it looked like almost a completely dead, senescent chloroplast. So almost all the membranes were gone. And in some of these, they also found um, what are known as rubisco containing bodies. So these are like small kind of membrane vesicles, which are associated with chloroplast senescence or degradation Mm -hmm. of parts of the chloroplast. Um, they also found a lot of ripples um, in the, the chloroplast membranes as well. Um, and they found that there was the accumulation of plastoglobuli. So these are, again, small um, lipid bodies, which are used for storage and metabolism, but they're associated with senescence, also oxidative um, stress, but are also involved in um, biogenesis processes in the way that they're also um, 
do something with recycling. So in this case, they say, okay, the thylakoids that are getting broken down, they're making sure that those lipids and those um, proteins from the thylakoids are getting recycled so they can be made into new things when the plant needs it. And finally, in some cases, they saw that the chloroplasts themselves were fragmented and bits of the chloroplasts were like seen in the vacuole or in the vacuole, which suggested that like the chloroplast is getting completely broken down. So this mm-hmm. is chlorophagy. So when mm-hmm. yeah. basically lose it. But some of them stayed intact. So it's just like a percentage that gets broken down and some of them stay intact. And they didn't really have firm numbers, but they said there was like a lot of variation um, of different ones. Did they, did they say if that might have been a controlled shutdown of a f- percentage of it? That they just the sort of the plant retains 10, 20, 40 percent, whatever the number is, of intact chloroplasts and everything else gets degraded a, a, along regular degradation? They didn't discuss groups. that so much, but they made it sound more like it was really dependent on um, how intense the light was and things like this. So, I mean, they, they mentioned that there's difference between this top section of the, the leaf versus the bottom section, which had less stress. Um, but there wasn't any statistics as far as what percentage were mm-hmm. in these small fragments. And to be honest, I think this statistics gets quite tricky when you have like fragmentation of chloroplasts as well. It starts to get hard to like count who's whole and who's not whole. Um, but yeah, they didn't have this. Um, they just said there was like quite a lot of variation. Um, and in some cases it looked like it had gone almost to the end point. In other cases it looked like, yeah, that's fine. That'll, that'll make a recovery. The final, one of the final things they found was that there was like this unique vesicles, which were not plastoglobuli, but were like quite small, 100 nanometers in diameter. And they were organized usually like in a single row, like kind of um, a chain of pearls, uh-huh. um, one next to each other near the chloroplast envelope. And they, because they had this cryo um, um, SEM, they could actually kind of um, break away sections and see that the vesicles were in between the inner membrane and the outer membrane of the chloroplast. So that oh, the yeah. between, so chloroplasts have double membranes and it was in between the inner and the outer envelope. And they say this is a complete mystery. They haven't seen them before. They don't know what they are. They're too small to contain intact photosystems or anything like that. But what they do contain, they look like they had something kind of a similar structure to what was found in the inner membrane of the chloroplasts um, as opposed to the outer membranes. But they they said it's it's a mystery. So they have oh, to do further research. Yeah. Yeah. So um, basically the plants deal with all this pressure by a whole range of different measurements. They try to reduce the excitation and electron pressure by folding their leaf, so physical changes, by increasing anthocyanins, so like this protection, chemical protection, by remodeling their photosystems, like detaching the light harvesting complexes and doing other things which like minimalize the accumulation of ROS. but despite that, there seems to be fairly systematic repair, uh, sorry, elimination of like degradation of the chloroplasts, but also some signs that there is like repair and elimination of damaged things. So, I mean, rust causes damage, but then you have to clean up the damage. So if you see a lot of these like um, autophagy-like processes, it could be a sign that the plant is very efficient at mm-hmm. trying to get rid of the damaged stuff before the damage gets yeah. goes further. Yeah, it's not just like random accumulation of rubbish, but sort of the... The garbage Tide. workers come in and they like collect it and take care of it and re- potentially uh, use it again for rebuilding. Yeah, and in the end, if there's there's more of these like garbage working processes, then that actually might mean that the plant is healthier because it's better at getting rid of the problem as opposed to like another plant where it would immediately like yeah. build up and explode on the whole plant. Yeah. Um, and the final thing they said that like despite these some of these cells looking really bad, it's clear from just rewatering the plants that the changes that are happening are somehow reversible. So this was something kind of amazing and they had to look further into the mechanism because it's... Yeah, so, so all of these processes that you described, they get reversed when the plants get water again for a period of time. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's some level of recovery. So it's, yeah. it's unclear if there's a point of no return um, for some of those cells or at least for some of those chloroplasts, there must be. But... um. Yeah. yeah, this has to be clearly researched more. The whole organism uh, does like, okay. Yeah, recovers completely from it. Mm. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. How long can they stay dried up like this? Is this indefinitely? Is this is this just for the period of a summer or whatever the seasonal climates are? I honestly couldn't find anything. It's it's quite hard to find information about this species online. Um, it says 
stay dormant for long periods and spring mm. back to life after some rain. So I imagine it seasonally and I imagine they live in like these very arid yeah. com- like conditions in Africa where you get like rain once a year or something like this. So this is what I'm yeah, so they imagining, can... but I, I couldn't find information to be honest. Yeah. Cool. And I mean, as, as this is not a model species, it's probably not have been uh, sequenced yet. And so it's also like no clue yet if there could be anything that we can transfer from that to our crops and make them more drought resistant or something like that. Not yet. No, I think, um, yeah, it, it's hard to tell. I guess a lot of this, there's a lot of general stuff that like the anthocyanins, this is general, like reorganizing your photosystems. This is like something that plants do generally. Um how this differs from a plant, how it gets to such an extreme state. This is something which yeah. is obviously somehow specific to this species. Um, also, and I think the answer is that it's a combination of different things, right? Yeah. So, like, uh, it's not just like a single gene that you put in there and miraculously your plant no, it's, does it's, all that. It's it's making like behavioral changes and physical changes, and mechan- yeah. like everything is changing, yeah. and that's what what keeps it alive. On the other hand, you could learn. You could take some of these things. Like if you find like a, a variety for whatever crop you're interested in that is able to curl up leaves under certain stress conditions um, and then alleviate some of the, the problems that arise from having uh, like no water but active photosynthesis, um, that could be already very valuable. So that's always the, the exciting bits in, in this research. Although now it seems like very broad in general, like you can pick out some of these things and try to figure out just how this leaf curling works and potentially then just le- use that knowledge to select plants that uh, can curl their leaves up in certain conditions. But yeah, cool. Mm. Very nice. So also this paper you find in the show notes below. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll link also to the other two. I think there's two papers from the kind of the same group which are really doing the, the first detailed analysis of this really weird plant. So. And we'll also put in some of the pictures um, yeah. that you can have a look at the, this plant because it's, it looks quite pretty. It would actually make like a decent like, homegrown plant, especially if it would be so resistant. I imagine that the drawback is it probably has a really slow growth or it only produces flowers. I mean, usually when you're so resilient, you have a cost and often yeah. the cost is like... They, they won't be flowering all year long. Yeah. yeah. But maybe if, maybe, I don't know, like maybe if you give it a lot of... A lot of resources. It's really, really, really happy. Or you just have to um, adapt to this this cycle and let it dry out, and then water it again, and maybe every four months or every six months. <laughs> and then, like, you accidentally throw it out because you think it's dead, and then like, ah, where's yeah. my plant? Yeah, you should be, make sure that it's flowering when you go on holidays. When somebody comes in to water your plants, and they don't think <laughs> they killed your stuff. Honestly, I I had one of those um, Jericho roses. This is like this. Um, it looks a bit like a Selaginella. Um, and it curls up and it opens and I you have to rewater it and then it opens but I, I rewatered it too much and it got fungus on it <laughs> I killed the unkillable plant although I also I heard something that like a lot of the ones that you get they're already kind of dead they still have this ability to open just from turgor pressure like they mm. still absorb water but they're not going to like make new leaves they're just kind of like it'll look good and yeah, because they've, so they've been harvested and then kept in storage for ages and they get yeah. sold to the public and they're like, yeah, yeah, very sad. Very, very sad. Um, you got a fun fact, Yoram? Uh, no, first first we have our favorite segment. Dun, 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 dun. My favorite plant. Oh, God. Is this... Today uh, is uh, Visia or- orobus, Visia eh? orobus. Um, Wait, what? <laughs> it's a legume. Um, <laughs> it grows on meadows, uh, mostly on the British Isles, but you can also find it up in Norway um, and as south as Switzerland. Mostly, most uh, habitats are have in common that they are some somewhat next to the Atlantic, apart from Switzerland, which is not really near the, any sea. Wait, which one is the Atlantic? Um, that's the one to the left of us. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, and I found this because uh, I was desperately looking for interesting plants yesterday. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, I, yeah, I, I'm i doing this podcast, but actually don't know anything about plants in general. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, oh, it's like I, 
at home all the plants in my home then they're, they're done by my wife and not by me like she takes care of them and knows stuff about them and i don't so it's always a bit of a problem but i found this because it was mentioned in a tweet by um, a botanist and um it struck me because it grows on mull in scotland and that's an island that i've visited and i liked it and then i saw the pictures and i thought it's quite pretty mm-hmm. um yeah okay i mean it looks like a pea plant honestly and it has these beautiful kind of snapdragon-y like flowers kind of pale pink oh and it grows like kind of yeah it grows in groups on on meadows um and then when i read up on it it's a dam- uh, it's um endangered both by over and under grazing by animals so it needs just the amount right amount of grazing so probably it can like some competitors are eaten away while if it's uh but if it's overgrazed gets eaten as well so probably sometimes i think plants just like some species just don't want to survive (laughs) i just need it to be just right like i don't want to be too picky but like don't eat me too much but eat me a little bit and um the other thing that i found about this uh, this plant um there's not that much research on it because it's it's sort of just a weed that grows on on meadows. It's interesting probably for for insects to uh, as as a food source and everything. Um, but I found an old paper from 1931. Oh gosh! And um, this paper deals with the nucleoles and the chromosomes in this uh, species, or actually in uh, in many related species. The whole paper is in German because back then the scientific language was German, and it has hand-drawn microscopy pictures of the chromosomes of this species, and that's show why me, I found me. quite fun. Oh, it's really cute. It looks like one of those games um, on the internet where they have like patterns and they're like, which one comes next? So it's like two lines and then like a circle and a dot. And they're like, this one, this one, this one. And then they're like, which one's number five? And you have to work out how many lines and circles and dots. And I didn't read through the entire paper, but um, there's, these are like cross sections of root tissue and then um, the chromosomes were stained and then drawn. Um, and then also their position in the cell was drawn here. But it's fun to see how... Yeah, just a hundred years ago, ninety years ago, this was how you did the the research. You had to draw draw it on your own. You didn't have cameras to take the pictures, and it was already very fascinating to just study the structure of the uh, the the chromosomes. They, back then, the whole genome theory, the whole gene uh, creates pro- genes and code for proteins, were just a theory. Back then, people didn't know what is doing what in the cell, and they they believed that the um, uh, that the uh, genomic information is actually stored in the proteins and not in the DNA and so on. So all of these, this is from a time where a lot of the basics that we just take for granted now when we talk about biology were not yet um, fully understood. It's uh, kind of beautiful. It looks a bit like some cave drawings as well. It has this like very like yeah artistic element to it. Yeah, and it's just like no grayscale. It's just black and white and you... Um, then it's it says something here how it has been in the in the caption how it has been re- uh, reduced and signed 1920th uh, for printing so to also give like a scale there and this is all all, all the things where we now digitally measure in a microscopy image we we have tools to measure the diameter of a diameter of a cell this has all been described here in, in detail how he performed his microscopy so the people who read that can figure out like the sizes and relations of stuff so this seems tricky yeah so I'm, I'm quite glad that uh, I think that's probably out of copyright maybe we can put some pictures onto the Instagram to show I, I wonder how it is uh, because um, yeah I the the on Springer link um, it was still like I had to use the company um, access to to the database <gasps> they also look a little bit like um, little demons or like um, the face of like spiders with multiple eyes and then like separately the legs of the spiders which have been ripped off the spider yes. There's many gruesome images you can draw from this. Or oh, it's just uh, chromosomes and it's about as like... Yeah. This one looks like a horsey. Maybe a cow. Yoram's like tilting his head. He doesn't see it. Yeah, I, I, to me, this was the most ghost-like. But anyway, this is <laughs> uh, my check favorite it out. plant. So you can understand what we're talking about in a non-visual medium. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, this is uh, linked down there and... Um, yeah, it's a nice little plant, and I found it from the twi- Twitter account Trevor the Botanist at uh, Doctor Trevor Dines, um, and he goes around uh, the British Islands and um, mostly looks at meadows and the plants growing on meadows. And I found it quite interesting um, to look through his tweets. And yeah, and also visit Mull. It's a beautiful uh, island. Has puffins. No, uh, yeah, Mull has puffins. Mull has good whiskey. Uh, it has everything you need, pretty much. <laughs> 
All right. Yeah. Do you have something fun for a change? Fun. Um, I actually have something that Etienne, one of our friends and ex-colleagues, sent in to us about uh, lemons and limes and mandarins and oranges and, yeah, basically about citrus. So um, this is from an article on The Science Breaker. So go to www.thesciencebreaker.org. Um, and it's reporting on a recent, fairly recent publication um, that came out in PNAS um, in 2018. And the publication is called High Speed Microjets Issue from Bursting Oil Gland Reservoirs of Citrus F Fruits. And it's basically the idea that like, you know, when you hold a citrus, um, if you squish it a bit, you get this beautiful smell. And actually that's like bursts of oil coming out of the citrus. And, yeah. and if you do that into a flame, you have like a little flamethrower, like a citrus flamethrower. I have not done that. You should do that into a candle and then you get like little sparks of fire. Like just, it's very safe. It's a... Uh, <laughs> how to make fire with your arm. Um, <laughs> so they basically used this natural ability that the, the skin of the citrus has and um, measured the speed at which the jets of oil were forced out of um, different citrus fruits, which is based on the structure of the oil glands and, and how the skin actually itself is. Um, and they said that the, the lime was the best performer. It had jets that came out at 13.9 meters per second. Um, while the Mandarin uh, was the lowest coming out at 8.7 meters per second. This was measured at 15 days after purchase, which also is like quite funny for me because I don't know if you've <laughs> ever like bought mandarins in a German supermarket in winter, but like sometimes like at the day of purchase, they're not great. That's all I'm saying. So maybe it's not the mandarins fault. Like maybe... I You're also <laughs> quite like the, the scientific approach to, to it, to give like this completely arbitrary date of purchase where you don't know how long this has been in store. Long. I think, yeah, I think it's really hard to know also because um, they could have been like in cold storage for months, right? Like yeah. they could have been picked in Brazil five days ago or they, you know. Yeah. I have like no idea how old they actually are. <laughs> okay, but generally it's a really cool thing where like we're looking at how nature has this way of doing something. Um, And they said like, you can get an average for us. Okay, so there's there's variation between different species, but average you get like 10 meters per second, this like jet of oil coming out at you. Um, but it can be as high as 30 meters per second, which is, is much faster than I can move. So well done. Um, <laughs> and why we should actually... <laughs> we should have that as a standard for all things with... <laughs> is it faster than Tegan or slower than Tegan? <laughs> um, and... The, the reason we should actually care about this, what it could be interesting for is that um, it could be a, a way of looking at ways of um, delivering medicine, like airborne medicine. So if you have, for example, a Ventolin when you have asthma that you take and you like puff it into your mouth, there's, it's very important that you get this very rapid burst of the medicine, mm -hmm. but also that um, the... They break into droplets very quickly. You don't want just like one like wet globule. It needs to really be vaporized properly. Mm -hmm. um, and they said that citrus jets break up droplets very quickly within two millimeters of the zest surface. So they just put it as a kind of... Hey. So you would have then as a drug delivery system, you have like a little bendable piece that is like an artificial citrus fruit with your drug inside. And you put it in front of your mouse, you like bend it and it's just like... Psh, and yeah, I don't know if it's going to be quite that direct from the citrus to the application, but like it's basically we can learn something from plants. And the other thing they said is they could um, have it as a kind of skin on um, important structural formations. So um, that whenever there's some sort of uh, change in the structure, you get this rapid um, expulsion of something. Perhaps it could be like a dye. Mm. And then, for example, if you had a bridge or a crane, if the dye started leaking out, then you could say, mm, this point is becoming structurally weak. And this would be like a oh, good warning system. So this was just like two um, things that came up in the yeah. Science Breaker article. But um, that's cool. Yeah, go read the article over at Science Breaker and also check out the original article at PNAS um, if you want to. And thanks, Etienne, for the link. Yeah, thank you. And if you have any links, you, the listener, um, then just send it uh, our way and um, we might feature it on the show. Just uh, We are always glad for Do any suggestion. Do our homework for us because we are lazy. Yeah. yeah. And I have just something that you can listen to now. I hope this works now. Shall I explain what I'm seeing? Yeah. All right. It's somebody tapping a seed code, boom, boom, 
And then in the last... <laughs> Alright. I can also in the last shot, it then like the all of the the seed parts just fall apart and it shatters to the earth. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it's and a gymnosperm of some kind. Of. Um, yeah, that's a, a, a gymnosperm. I, I, it's um, the plant is called a hoop pine cone. Hoop from the hoop pine. Hoop hoop. Yeah, I I don't know much about the species. Um, this is just also from from Twitter from uh, Kathy Offert uh, at asps app sarah cat i will put a link there and um yeah she hashtagged us with plant sounds and was like getting excited um for finding lots and lots of sounds that plants make and this is the only tweet under this hashtag unfortunately but i quite liked it i really liked like the sound i liked the sound for when this cone completely falls apart and disintegrates can we um, contact her and ask her if we can steal that for our podcast yeah i, I she put it on twitter and she wants we, it to be stolen i mean you with the right copyright yeah. <laughs> legislation, something. Um, yeah, so that was my little story. There's not, I don't know much more about it. Um, That's it. You can find us on Twitter. There we are, at Plants Pipettes. You can find us on Instagram. At Plants and Pipettes. You can find us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Plants and Pipettes. And on our website we also have a website it's the, our blog guys yeah plantsandpipettes.com no www just plantsandpipettes.com yeah I mean as you can add the www but you're just wasting time you could be spending on listening to our podcast is that how the world wide web works like will it even go to the right place I'm <laughs> confused about internet it doesn't work if you put www in it doesn't it says attackers might be trying to steal my information this is not important for our listeners um, have a nice day you guys we'll see you or you'll hear from us again in two weeks time let us know if you hear any interesting plant things and yeah adieu yes goodbye And next week on the podcast, I will be talking about a new anti-metabolite, a new herbicide uh, isolated from cyanobacteria. And I'm going to be talking about chloroplasts and how um, chloroplast DNA is degraded to give phosphate stores to the plant. See you next time. See you next time.